0: And we are live. Hello, hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Strong Tea. I'm Vicki. And I'm Katie. And together with this episode is actually called Stronger Tea. Now, the difference being is that we're still going to talk about topics that are considered taboo, people that we think should be talking about a lot more and educating themselves. But this is more of a not suitable for work kind of. Topic or one that is perhaps going a little deeper, um, hence stronger tea. Yeah. So this is the first of our stronger teas, and we have our wonderful guest, Dr. Ellie Bertley, who Katie will introduce us to shortly. But first of all,
1: what are we drinking, Ellie? You first. Hi, thank you for having me today. That's I'm really, really privileged to be in your first stronger tea
0: debut.
1: <laughs> so I have red bush tea. Oh. In a horse cup
0: because I love horses. Nice, that's a beautiful horse. That looks like—is it a Charlie Mackey? You know the the artist,
1: uh, Gabriella Shaw. Oh, nice. beautiful! Yes.
2: I, do you know what though? I, what I will say is, when I watched the Queen's funeral, I was absolutely fine until I saw the horse and the corgis, wow. and that got yeah. me.
1: I know that oh, was yeah. amazing, wasn't it? Absolutely amazing. Oh, you know, and I was, and the, and the
2: horse
0: is called Emma i know i know yeah Cut her scarf on the saddle as well yeah
2: don't. i know i know i'm I'm fine until you give me dogs dogs or <laughs> animals I can't, yeah. I can't deal with um so what are you drinking vicky
0: i'm drinking Vadem pure mint Ooh. bit of a cleanser a bit of a cleanser refreshing and soothing mint leaves after
2: nice. you after your sandwich you just forced down yeah
0: yeah very much so I, yeah help with the indigestion
2: nice nice i like it <laughs> what about you I've gone for a pucker um tea, um, which is is called joy. Aww. I know it could be left open for interpretation, but it's a lemony tea with hints of orange. It's quite nice. It's quite nice, nice. it's quite quite cleansing, like you say, quite cleansing, quite soothing. Other Let's... teas are available. <laughs> <laughs> but without further ado, before we talk about tea or coffee or anything else all day long. I'd like to introduce you to the wonderful Dr. Ellie Bertley, who is a sexual and relationship well-being expert. Now, when we decided to do Stronger Tea, we were like, right, who, who should we speak to for this? And who's better to start off with than a sex therapist? So Dr. Ellie, which is what I'm going to call you for the entire episode, without <laughs> further ado, tell us your story. Tell us how you became a sex
1: therapist. Okay thank you for that lovely introduction. So I'm currently a doctor in sexual health um, working three days a week in the NHS and then I do two days a week with my private practice as a sex and relationship therapist and I have a wonderful balance with those two aspects both the physical and the psychological but there is massive overlap. So um, I'll tell you a little bit about how I got here I went into sexual health as a stopgap 28 years ago, didn't know which specialty to go into after I'd finished my junior house jobs. And when I entered sexual health, I found it a second heaven because my social the social mask comes off when patients come in they have to talk about really personal things they have to break through the taboos the shame the embarrassment the guilt the fear in order to talk about what's happening with their sex life both physically and psychologically and i was brought up in the 70s and 80s where the the generation of that time was don't talk about your feelings don't show anything and i subsequently went to boarding school from the age of 13 to 18 and that was a typical English institution which was uh, along that same line so here I was working in a job I loved in a way that I loved and so that's where it really started and then I noticed how uh, women because it was family planning back then not not sexual health would come in with physical symptoms and there'd be no identifiable physical cause and I was left stuck not knowing how to help them And then I found my clinics running over as I tried to explore the emotions behind these physical symptoms that were unexplained organically. So I found myself some training with the Institute of Psychosexual Medicine and they skill up doctors, nurses and allied health professionals now to use therapeutic skills within the medical consultation setting in order to help this body-mind medicine. And that's where I began my journey into the therapeutic world. And then life went on, continued to work in in that way. Um, and then in 2014, I unfortunately decided to separate from my then husband, and I wanted to make sense of it. So that's when I started to look more into the relationship side of things and did training through Relate. I did my postgraduate diploma in psychosexual therapy and. Uh, developed a network with pure relationship therapists and that was really enlightening and then subsequently to that I've also done some training in sexual addiction work um, because pornography is becoming an increasing problem um, in the field of sexual health. So in 2016 I'd finished my training and I felt adequately qualified to then set up my own independent practice um, which I have found has flourished since that time. Um, and within the NHS, I've developed a specialism in working with women with vulval pain. So I attend multidisciplinary team meetings with other specialists, gynaecologists, dermatology, women's pelvic floor physiotherapists in order to help this complex problem. So I think overall, it's been it's fascinating work um, and there's lots of parallels as to what happens in the therapy room as a, and what happens with sex itself. Mm. So within the therapeutic relationship, I find that people, clients are often challenged with the shame, the difficulty talking about sex, difficulty connecting, the embarrassment and the guilt. Mm. But sex therapy also has an upside. So it's not all difficult and complex um, and traumatic it has the funny side the exciting side it can be humorous explorative playful Um, and clients and myself can feel alive um, alive invigorated connected and intimate that's amazing I think I mean what you've done and
0: with what you said about in the 70s and 80s and there were there's that disconnect between psychological impact and the physical And I think with your pioneering work in saying, you know, some of these pains, some of this difficulty, it isn't just a physical thing. It's it's mental. It's also it it can be psychological a lot, a lot
1: to deal with the psychology behind it. Yeah. And I find that quite fascinating. It is fascinating. And it isn't a specialism within itself, as far as I know. And I think that's where medicine um, lacks slightly because it's it silos conditions into specialisms. But then there's this massive back overlap in the background where where it connects with what's happening with us mentally and emotionally yeah that's powerful really powerful
2: I absolutely love how you must get up and go to work every
1: day and it's totally totally different yes there is never a day that's the same absolutely not. And never a day where I'm not humbled to be able to help people with this difficult area Mm -hmm. um, and where I don't learn something for myself as well. Because um, any therapist will tell you that alongside your client's journey, you've got your own personal journey and it doesn't stop and you can't separate the two. I learn something from every client that that I'm with.
0: That's amazing. It's kind of almost that, um, is it symbiotic? When, yeah. yeah you're learning with each other and discovering things as yes. as yeah teacher and pupil as it were yeah why why do people not talk about sex why do people still think it's taboo
1: i always ask my clients one question which is was sex ever talked about in your family of origin and they usually say no And that's where it starts. And that's not to point finger at our parents and our families, because it was their parents and their families that didn't do it either. So it's a generational thing and it gets passed down. But when something isn't spoken about, it gives us an inadvertent message that... That thing, and in this case, sex, is dirty, wrong, taboo. And then these messages are internalised, which we don't realise as we grow up. We internalise messages from our family. We internalise messages from society and culture. And then we think they're there, our own thoughts and feelings about something. But what we can do as we get older and more mature is that we can shine a light on those and we can decide, well, does that actually serve me? Is this thinking mine or have I internalized it from somewhere else? Hmm. So um, so then you can actually have a choice. You can have a choice over, over whether you sit with those things that we've been conditioned to think and feel or whether you choose your own direction. And that's a piece of work that sex therapy often has to do in order to help people to move away from the things that hold them back and to move into a new place where they're not inhibited, where they don't feel so inadequate, they don't feel so awkward.
2: I think that's, like you say, it it is a generational thing. And I think like it was never, it was never, ever discussed in my house for sure. And it's also not really discussed openly just generally is it because it's always seen as a very private sort of thing so how do we open up the conversation about sex because obviously as you know both Vicky and I have children so is it something that we should talk about with them when we're in an appropriate no Freddie seems like he wants to talk about it now um but when when they're appropriate age is that a conversation to be had because it's it's still quite a difficult conversation isn't it even if you the next generation
1: Yeah, it's a really good point. And I think we haven't had it modeled to us as parents how to do this. So this is a new journey for all of us. But but I think it it certainly can happen and should happen from a very early age. So it it just gradually builds up in an age appropriate way. So the language is starting to be used, but in a way that's sensitive, appropriate, and that can open up discussion and and questioning. Mm -hmm. Um, I've Approach this with my children from all the all the way through and so far I don't think it's done any harm Um but uh, and, and hopefully the opposite but you know they are so comfortable about talking about um sexual things and they've had on their bookshelves they still have the, the original books that I bought I think there's one called Where Willie Went which is fantastic <laughs> um, yeah. and yeah that's one of their favourite books that they've kept and so I think it can be done in a way that that is Is useful and sensitive and appropriate. Just out of interest, sorry. What what age did you start that? I can't remember, but I I think I mean for my daughter, we already had those books, so that was from she would have grown up with them in her bedroom because she was the second child. So so that I think if it happens in that way, there's no sudden discussion that needs to happen. It's not awkward and it's not embarrassing. That's so important because if you make it a big
0: thing, then they're going to think it's a big thing. And I'm probably leaping ahead here, but there's a safety issue as well in having that open conversation, Mm -hmm. that safe conversation about sex. And, you know, by making it dirty and secretive, you're not allowing your child the sense of what it actually is. And there are dangers associated with that in keeping things secret and how you feel about sex Yeah, it's just fraught. And as you get older, you said before about porn addiction, you are not being allowed to express or talk openly about sex. And so you go into porn and your preconceptions and how you see sex is then going to be incredibly unhealthy
1: yes yes i hear a lot of people who come to me for sex or sex and porn addiction that it started through a curiosity through not having any other outlet mm-hmm. and they it, it was available it's free it's anonymous um so that accessibility to these materials means that they then develop a very skewed view of what sex should be from a very early age and without the more realistic discussion available, then it can't be balanced um, or, or counteracted, and it, it can be devastating. Um, and also for, for people that whose bodies aren't maybe as they should be, so I often hear men with very tight foreskins, and they have what we call a phimosis, where they can't pull back their foreskins, and they don't necessarily know that's not normal. But it can cause discomfort with sex. So they never actually tell their parents that they've got this problem because the conversations aren't happening. Um, And then they end up with sexual issues secondary to the pain. And that can then, you know, they don't actually get help until their 20s or 30s. And by then a lot of damage is done. Yeah. By then they've lost their sexual confidence. They've lost time in in sexual exploration. It's affected relationships and their self-esteem.
2: I think one of the things that when we had our initial chat with you that really struck me, and I know Vicky mentioned it once already, the psychological impacts of mental, you know, thought processes and things that you've grown up with. And, you know, the way that you think about your body or the way that you think about sex can actually affect things, can actually affect people physically. Mm
1: -hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. So what So what do you mean exactly, Katie? Okay, so well,
2: like in terms of um, when we spoke before, you talked about things like erectile dysfunction yes. um, and things like that, whereas people thought, you know, men might think it's just flat out, a, no pun intended there, um, like, a, you know, that it is just a plain physical problem, whereas oh, exactly. actually yes. psychologically there's a lot going on maybe behind the scenes that needs to be dealt with, and oh. a lot of people don't address that
1: yeah so when people present for the sex therapy they might present with a calling card that's on the surface seems really simple like erectile dysfunction or premature ejaculation or not being able to orgasm on or, or not having much desire but underneath that there's a whole complexity of psychological emotional um the cultural and the physical issues that are all interplaying together and one of the, the the bits that I think is the challenge and the interest of being a sex therapist is that we need to unpick that together with the client so where where does the cause lie is it in the physical And of course it's really important that gets excluded So if a man comes forward with erectile dysfunction, then, of course, they need to see their GP. They need to have all the blood tests. They need to make sure there's nothing else causing it. But once the organic side has been excluded, then we need to shine a light on Well, what's going on here. Where is the pain behind this? For example, you may have a man who's a widower and he's in a new relationship and his his erectile dysfunction is a, a a physical manifestation of deep underlying guilt be, that he's with someone new and he's no longer with his wife who has passed away so that's where you can see the body and the mind working together another example might be with women with vaginismus where the vagina tightens it and it's not under their con- conscious control it's an unconscious thing And they may have an underlying fear of an unplanned pregnancy, or they may have an underlying fear of STIs. And this is where the sex education that we have all received can fall down because it's been very fear mongering. And lots of people will see sex associated with disastrous events, not something as a source of pleasure and emotional connectivity with their loved one, but they see it as something to be fearful of so um that can then lead to people not being consciously aware of this fear but then it comes out in their bodies
2: it's just fascinating isn't it? Yeah. it like the the knowing that these things are connected when people might think oh well I've got this problem but I'm too embarrassed to talk about it whereas it could could be quite quite straightforwardly fixed like
1: you've like you just talked about there Yes. And they need the space and, and the security and the safety and the environment in order to explore that and to piece it together. Because we all get so busy, don't we? Yeah. We run through our lives. We're thinking of other people most of the time and our own issues just get put to the back burner. Yeah. But it's so important not to let that go on, to create space for ourselves, to explore these things, to look in, inwards, because then that will also affect the people around us. So, and I think
0: what you said before as well with the relationship side of that as well, because one may not, uh, one side of the partnership may not really understand why a certain partner is behaving the way they are sexually, and they may not understand it themselves. So that deep psychological dive can obviously unpick a lot of,
1: I don't know, underlying things that potentially yeah. neither partner knew about. Yes. Yeah. so th- So they could present with high levels of conflict within the relationship, whereas actually the cause is is misunderstanding and lack of communication about the cause of this problem. So, for example, if, you know, the partner of a man with erectile dysfunction can often take it very personally, they feel under-desired, they feel rejected, they feel, what's wrong with me? Is he hiding something? Is he getting pleasure from somewhere else, from something else? And that creates a huge amount of of distress. And then that distress gets um, expressed in the relationship. And then the man with the erectile dysfunction then starts to feel even more of a failure, even more of a letdown, even more of a cause of problems. And so his erectile dysfunction then just gets perpetuated.
2: Tell us about, uh, I mean, not literally, but tell us about your clients, like who... Like, what's the split? Male, female? Do you get couples? Do you get individuals? LGBTQ? What sort of ages are they? Because I'm sure there might be people out there thinking, my God, I, you know, who sees a sex therapist? You know, should I be going to a sex therapist?
1: So... so. We- the simple answer is to that is is there is no normal. So there's no normal in terms of who needs sex therapy. It can be, I, I see 16 years and up, and I saw a 16-year-old recently, and they can be as old as, you know, in their 70s. So because through all the life life stages we get different challenges and they throw up different things and our sexual desires our sexual journey isn't static it's not just there it's created and then and then it stays the same it will fluctuate it will have times of exploration or have times of abstinence there will be times where we feel connected times where we feel disconnected and all life stresses will not just affect us as who we are but it will affect and, and ripple into our personal relationships and our sex lives
2: i love that i love i love yeah. that you just see everyone yeah. I think, I, and it's it's so funny isn't it because you know a lot of people probably listening to that will probably be like 70 years old my god we <laughs> just need to get used to the fact that everyone has sex don't they
1: yeah everyone has sex but it's really important to point out that if you aren't that's okay too yeah, there is absolutely no normal, and I think that's the most important thing to say. One of the commonest questions I might get asked is, you know, am I normal? What's wrong with me? Um, and the answer to that is, there's nothing wrong with you. We just need to work out what's what's blocking if you feel blocked. But not everyone feels that they, if they, if their sexuality is something that they choose not to be expressing overtly, then that's normal too. And of course, I won't necessarily see those people. They may not come for therapy because it's the distress about something that brings people for therapy.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? Because I think one of the things we talked about in the pre-chap as well is a lot of the questions and particularly the thing that friends talk about is frequency of sex. And there's that benchmark of, well, how often are they doing it? Are we normal? Because we're only yeah. doing And there's that massive kind of almost pressure around sex, about what is deemed as normal, including regularity and type and when and
1: where, and you just, it's quite pressured. And this is, and I think the media um, are liable for a lot of that pressure. Mm. So we're seeing, you know, the media does the damage in terms of body image. So so we're all supposed to be thin and we're all supposed to be um sexual and 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 expressing ourselves well. We're supposed to be having this broad range repertoire of sexual activity and we're supposed to be confident and, and it's really hard to maintain that. So there is a huge pressure through the media. Um, and I think you know we have to remember that that some people are happy only having sex two or three times a year other people Mm. are distressed if they don't have it every day Mm. so it's a very individual thing sexual expression is as varied as there are personalities I love that Mm. so so it's it you know I've been humbled to come into the therapy room not having any expectations but to be led by the client as to well where do they want their sexuality to go what's right for them and it can be from anywhere on the spectrum to literally just wanting sex occasionally with their partners in a very vanilla way or the other extreme where they want um, you know open relationships with kink and and polyamorous and all that sort of thing and everything in between Mm. and it's okay wherever you are as long as you feel comfortable with it and that you feel you're expressing yourself.
0: So this is quite a loaded question. Um, What do you think is the most damaging effect then for people's feelings about sex we just mentioned the media there and we touched on the fringes there of culture we talked before about how um, our upbringing and being quite restricted with how we talk about sex we talked about porn what what do you think is the most damaging and the yeah just the most damaging thing for people with thinking and expressing and having
1: sex So I think all of those things lead to one place and it's a very, very, very dark place, and that's shame. So shame is becoming something much more talked about now. We know a lot more about it, and it's so ubiquitous, it's like the air that we breathe. So we don't notice it. And when you don't notice it, it means it it can really take over. And when we feel shame, we feel like it's not what we do is wrong, we feel wrong in our very core. We feel that we are wrong. So when that gets triggered, life is very, very difficult. And people tend to react in one of four ways. They either, um, they can either become very attacking outwardly to other people, they can attack themselves, they can withdraw, or they can seek out addictive behaviors as a a way of of having an alternative coping mechanism. But none of those lead to happiness or contentedness.
2: Do you think, you know, we've talked about shame and you've already talked a lot about um, porn addiction uh, and it's like sex addiction as well. Do you think pornography addiction has become more prevalent
1: since lockdown? That's a really good question. I don't have any data to support that theory, but I can imagine that any kind of life stress and and covid was a huge life stress will only increase um our compulsions whether that's porn sex uh online shopping gambling alcohol drugs um being abusive to partners so we do know that domestic violence rapidly ran, uh, racked up during the pandemic, So I think that is logically a yes to that answer, but I don't have the data to support it. Mm. it with the, the pornography thing,
0: I know in recent years there's been, um, again, I haven't got the stats at the top of my head, I am normally the stats queen, Ellie, um, <laughs> but there has been a rise of female viewership and voyeurism and so on with with pornography and that kind of media. Are you seeing that translated into uh, your clients? Are women coming to you more with things that perhaps are
1: associated with pornography? Um, Not yet, although Mm -hmm. there might be a delay in that coming forward. Often there is a bit of a time lapse between Mm -hmm. things becoming more aware and and entering therapy. Um, I've only ever seen a a couple of female sex-strict porn addicts. Um, but that's not to say the problem isn't out there. It's still mainly men in my practice that come forward with that. Um,
2: whilst we're on the subject of porn, do you think... Um, I've, I've often read a couple of times that when people uh, get into watching porn, they tend to, you know, after a while, their desire for watching a certain type of porn can kind of wane and it sort of ebbs off to the point where it's not exciting them anymore and that then becomes they they need to find the next thing which excites them and it becomes more of a um a search for things which are slightly more extreme are you seeing you know is that is that quite a common is that quite a common problem because you know you think well obviously these people have gone on to find something and then eventually they've watched so much of it that actually it's not doing it for them anymore and is there a concern about then what that goes on to in their actual physical lives
1: yeah so that is one of the hallmarks of a compulsive relationship with porn in that that the behaviors or the, the the material that is being sought escalates in terms of its intensity and so that that is one of the criteria and the hallmarks so yes definitely see that um and That where that stops is very individual. So some people have a natural buffer. They can stop at a certain point and ring fence their compulsion from escalating. So they might never take that out into the the real world. They may never start meeting partners outside of their primary relationship. They may never, um, you know, seek sex workers, et cetera. But some people do. And I don't think that's necessarily, uh, you know, that, that that is just more of a marker of what's going on in their minds and where their ceiling is so some people just feel they absolutely cannot do that and other people don't have those breaks and they need more help in order to bring it back into a more healthy uh, limits talking about
0: the help that you give and obviously that's a, it sounds very complex with how you do that but how do you help people? What, if, if someone came to you as a sex
1: therapist, what, what would that look like? Do you mean porn addiction or generally? Uh, generally. Okay. So we talked earlier about the simple calling card, how they can come with quite what seems on the surface a simplistic symptom. But the complexities underneath are where we find how we're going to help them. So we need to untangle that knot of the physical, the psychological and the cultural issues um, and then find out what's causing it. And as we've already alluded to, the cause isn't always the most obvious. Um, It could be sitting in relationship issues. So it may not be in the sexual arena at all. And the attention needs to be diverted somewhere else. And then once you've attended to that, you would then go back to the sex to rebuild it. The sex isn't primarily necessarily the problem. Um, but then, of course, sometimes finding the cause isn't always enough to treat the problem. So understanding is always really, really helpful, and it's the good first step. But then it's like, well, so what, what are we going to do about this? And I think that's a really important second phase of the therapeutic process. And it's the perpetuating factors that need to be identified, and then the treatment can be um, aligned to those perpetuating factors. So, for example, I spoke earlier about a man with a tight foreskin who has a phimosis and then he has pain and that may cause erectile problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So he then has a circumcision. So the foreskin is released and the pain is resolved but he still continues to have erectile dysfunction. And that's because you then need to work with the perpetuating factors, which will be lack of sexual confidence, performance anxiety, poor self-esteem, and the impact that that problem has had on the relationship itself, if he's in one. So then you would then need to do um, some work with the other partner and the couple in order to rebuild a sex life um, so that the erectile dysfunction can resolve and just dissipate.
2: I, I I love hearing how you like sort of untangle these things because like you say just because physical issue has been sorted doesn't necessarily mean that the mental side of things will go away mm. I mean if you had to take a snapshot of uh you know your career what are the top reasons that people come to sex therapy and is that change do you see a change in that over the years the reasons people are coming
1: I think it's consistently desire issues. Now, whether that's influenced by culture, I don't know. With this pressure that we feel that we need to be having sex all the time, I don't know. But um, so couples will come with a discrepancy in sexual desire. Now, they don't often present with that discrepancy because they're, they're, they often, one of them will present saying, I have no desire but having no desire is not necessarily a problem it's a problem in that relationship because their partner will have probably have quite a high desire so we can see that it's discrepancy between the two of them that is actually creating the distress if you have two people together with lower desires then there may not not be a problem right and so, it, so it's that discrepancy that causes the distress within the relationship. So, and they are very complex, very interesting to treat, and probably one of the commonest, I would say. Um, what's interesting is the uh, attachment style that happens between every couple, and that how those attachment styles can then um, ripple out into the sexual arena. So for example, if someone is insecurely attached, and they have an anxious attachment style, then they may seek more sex in order to be validated. So the reasons for them wanting more sex can be deeper, not just about wanting a sexual release. And conversely, if someone is an avoidant attacher, then they may have less sex or less sexual desire in order to maintain a bit more distance within their long-term relationship. And so if you have a coupling of an anxious and avoidant attacher together, which is a very common um, coupling that that presents in sex therapy because it does create a lot of conflict, then you can see how that relationship attachment, that relationship dynamic can also create or present with a sex problem. But it's really an, an attachment issue that, that's at play. So in that circumstance, there's a lot to do, a lot of work around their attachment and their relationship and their communication.
0: Oh, my God, you blew my mind in the pre-chat. You've just blown my mind again. <laughs> like, that's fascinating. That's so interesting. So I know in the pre-chat before, you, the, the thing that blew my mind and we we're talking about um uh, the relationships, it was the, I think you called it the Madonna horror effect. That I found just Vicky. absolutely, it made me see something from a completely different point of view. So I'd, I'd love for you to share it again.
1: Yeah, so what Vicky's alluding to is sometimes we see, and, and I do apologise for the term because I think the terms are not very politically correct, <laughs> but but it's a colloquial term that, that adequately describes the scenario whereby uh, one person in a relationship, and it's usually a man, although I'm sure it isn't in reality, um, but The the clients I've seen, it's been the male partner who's expressing strong sexual desire and arousal outside of the relationship to partners that he doesn't really know. So casual partners. But in terms of his sexual desire for his primary partner, um, he finds it extremely difficult to express his sexuality within his intimate relationship because he sees her as almost a Madonna. So a mother like figure, someone to be preserved in her purity and yet he can in a sense debase or be sexual and be very primal with a woman outside who outside of his relationship who doesn't know that well so there's a splitting that can happen and that is in th- that is in theory related to upbringing issues and uh, relationships with primary caregivers I just find
0: it absolutely fascinating that from the surface from someone who doesn't know all of this and obviously we're extremely privileged to have you talking to us from this point you know with your your experience and and your professionalism and from an outsider point of view you would just say oh he cheated on her and so on but actually when you really dig into it um, and you the psychology behind it it
1: yeah it's absolutely fascinating I went on holiday recently and I took Esther Perel's The State of Affairs book and it was wonderful because she really put into in detail the all the themes and the the um the the issues behind reasons why people have affairs. And it's, it isn't just someone being a rat and cheating, you know, it's, it's huge. And it was so interesting. And one of the important points she made was that the more restrictions we have on our partners, the more likely people are to, to want to break those. Mm -hmm. So she makes a point of actually, you know, not having enmeshed relationships where we sort of micro control each other's um, behaviors, that we have those freedoms to kind of express ourselves and be more, more, um, have that, have that freedom and that creativity
0: yeah
1: but the more we hold on to our partners the more they may want to stray that's amazing yeah
0: if we could have a link to that book that would be awesome as well (laughs) but I imagine with things like that kind of psychological situation there and as you mentioned before the you know increasing the sex to have that attachment I'm imagining that there's quite a few models and these theories that end up piling on top of each other to create quite a complex
1: situation there are. And I think the important thing to remember is that in the therapy room, there's myself and the client. And it's important to work with each individual and their story, their experiences, their traumas, their their particular makeup and models will fall down around the edges. Mm. They're useful. We pin things on them. They're helpful. But if we over pathologize, then there's a danger of perhaps missing things Um inadvertently assigning theories to people that don't quite fit um, and also excusing people's behaviour. So we could say, oh, well, he does that. He's a porn addict or, um, you know, he can't express his emotions because he's on the spectrum. Mm. Well, there's nothing to stop that person working with their partners to find out how they can meet their needs and how they can learn to express their feelings a bit more. So I think theories are very, very useful, um, Mm. but they are not um they can't be applied to everybody and they can't be everything can't be pinned on them. Mm. Oh go on. No, I was gonna
0: say I'm I'm hogging this because I'm absolutely fascinated. But is is sex one of those things that you the things still surprise you in that you think you've learned the models and you've met people and you think okay that this is kind of what I'm expect do you still get clients or things come up that you think ah oh, Okay, this is interesting. This is
1: furthering my knowledge of what I knew about sex and sex addiction and sex issues. Absolutely. I I have learned so much from my clients and will continue to do so. And I will never profess to be an expert on everything in the field of sex. Always learning, always fascinated um, and enjoy that personal journey myself Mm -hmm. Uh, um in terms of of my own sexual expression and my own journeys and I'm just grateful for all the people both my clients and people in my personal life who help with that as I'm sure you both are as well oh
2: definitely I would love um we'll obviously put all of your details on our web page so that people can get in touch with you and you know we'll put put your details out there so that um you know, hopefully you can get some more people come along. Um, it would also be great to know if you recommend any books that like you just mentioned there that people might be able to read if they if they don't have the confidence straight away to get in touch with you. Although I'm hoping when people listen to this, they find out that you're very approachable and, you know, ready, ready to talk to anyone. But if you were to really summarize, we give all our guests the opportunity for a final sip. If you were really summarising what you wanted the world to know about sex therapy or your thoughts on it or what you want people to take away from this episode, what would you say?
1: I would say that if you're struggling with anything in this field, that you are not broken and there is no normal. And to don't leave it too long if you can't break through it yourselves with friends, partners books but to seek a safe space to with someone who you feel you can have that good connection with because the therapeutic relationship is the most important relationship in order to help facilitate change when you feel find someone that you feel comfortable with then that's your space in order to um to really work out what it is you need to move forward and to communicate 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 with yourself with your friends with your partner and if it needs to be with a therapist
0: amazing oh dr ellie Bertley, thank you so much for coming on it's um, going to break into applause then yes (laughs) that was a really good final sip i love it yeah yeah how open and I think when everyone thinks of sex therapy, it's kind of oh, it's good. I, th- I don't know if you've seen Sex Education with Gillian Anderson's kind of representation yeah. of a sex therapist,
1: yeah. and
0: it it doesn't sound like that. It doesn't. It's, it's more friendly, approachable, less kind of yeah. It's um yeah, absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, your stories and your journey as well that's been fantastic and thank you everyone for listening as well and if you are interested in supporting us further you can buy us a coffee or buy us a tea via our support page and yeah we will be back for more episodes of strong tea very soon we
2: absolutely will and don't forget to check out the back catalogue and all the uh episodes we have coming up as well and we will pop dr ellie's details on our website mm-hmm. all the information she's talked about today and if you want to get in touch with her please do she's a wonderful wonderful yeah. woman so thank you everyone it's been great we'll catch up with you very very soon take care bye, bye.